Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hi, welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region, and they pay respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. On this particular episode, I chat with director Randall Wood about his new film, Flyways, which is a visually stunning and emotionally enriching film about three different groups of endangered migratory shorebirds from around the globe. Each of these birds flies thousands of kilometers around the globe through migratory routes, traversing hemispheres and continents to reach breeding grounds. Often they will fly for days without food or water. Directed and shot by Randall, Flyways is a passionate film that presents a part of the avian species that are threatened by humanity, alongside many bird watchers and scientists who eagerly follow their journey around the globe. These scientists use tracking devices and location data, and occasionally, if luck is on their side, visual verification from humans to monitor where the birds move. Flyways plays out like a blend between travelling birds and Jennifer Peterm's river and mountain acting as a plea for mankind to respect nature and to consider just how we impact the living world around us. With a soaring score by Cesare Szybuski, I can never pronounce Cesare's name properly, so I do apologize, and gentle narration from Mia Vazakowska, Flyways is a soul-enriching film that deserves to be seen on the big screen. In this interview, Randall talks about the importance of capturing these images and how documentaries can be advocacy for films, as well as the Q&A sessions that he's embarking on throughout May and June across Australia. For more information about those Q&A sessions, head over to flywaysfilm.com. The link will be in the show notes. And to listen to other episodes of the Curb podcast, head over to thecurb.com.au and make sure to follow us on Facebook for other reviews, interviews and news. For now, here's a snippet of the trailer, and then we'll jump into the interview with Randall. As summer ends, shorebirds rise from the mud and take to the skies. They navigate thousands of miles along ancient flyways, lines of ancestral memory that wrap around the globe. Our quest is to follow the migrations of these birds. They're moving really quickly and they're moving very far. Where do they touch down? I'm hoping to find some of the stopover sites. The birds were roosting here this morning. We see a lot of tracks of red knots. They stay here for like two, three weeks to refuel in order to make it to northern Siberia. Thousands of kilometers of seawall have replaced natural coastline along much of eastern China. The rates at which things are changing are much faster than they've ever been. These birds are shrinking in size, and we think that Arctic warming is playing a big role here. There's every chance that eastern curly could be extinct within a few decades. Alarm bells go off. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the film because it is quite a beautiful experience and just a very stunning and visually engaging film, but also emotionally enriching too. So congratulations on the work that you've done uh, with capturing this story and telling it. It's, it's very powerful. 
Thanks, Andrew. It's, it's, it's great to hear that because, of course, making these films is quite the challenge. So it's always great when you come out with an outcome at the end that actually pleases people. Well, definitely. I mean, I, a little bit about myself as well. I was a vet nurse for eight years. So, uh, and my focus uh, as a vet nurse, we dealt with a lot of birds and dealt with a lot of both domestic and uh, wild birds. And so I got to experience uh, a completely different side of nature than a lot of people usually would. You Usually uh, people have dogs and cats and things like that, but birds is just something very different about them. And the way that they live their lives is so wonderful and, uh, you know, complete in a way that I don't think that people get to really fully understand. And getting to watch Flyways gave me an even greater appreciation of just how global these birds are. And I, I, I'm curious if you can use that as a launching point to talk about your interest in birds and your interest in wanting to explore their stories. So I see, talking about veterinary science and birds, I mean, birds are both, um, interestingly, they're both fragile and incredibly resilient. So they're quite powerful as flies because they've got vulnerabilities in their, in their cycles. And that was one of the things that drew to me this, to this project. I was very lucky in my youth to spend time on a family property, which was actually down on Redland Bay. It was called Mount Carmel Orchard, and it was a kind of pioneering, um, if you can call it that, um, orcharding farm that introduced introduced avocados to Australia from our farm there many, many years ago, my great-grandparents. But my grandmother was there, and she taught me a lot about birds and especially about shorebirds. And um, so that was a really nice introduction to, to birds. The interest in making the film came many, many years later when a friend of mine who was an environmental lawyer um, and sort of one young environmental lawyer of the year in Australia came sailing with me and I talked to him and I said, what would make an interesting story about, about nature, biodiversity and conservation that would tie that back to legal um, like prerogatives? And she said, well, there's two. There's either shorebirds right now or koalas. And um, I chose shorebirds. So it was really... I was interested in trying to tie together the story of a species that's very under threat and vulnerable without kind of duties as kind of citizens of, of democracy to uphold their rights. Well, definitely. And that's that's something I don't think that a lot of people consider. And certainly um, from a local perspective here in Perth, uh, maybe about five, six years ago, there was a really destructive uh decision to destroy a lot of sensitive uh, bushland and that actually was going to cause a huge impact on the rainbow bee eater birds which would come they would migrate into Perth and then uh, have burrows under the ground and things like that and there was really no consideration on actually what was possibly going on with their ecosystem and that really also is clear quite very clear with the shorebirds that are in your stories and the the journeys that they go on and the places that they visit they're not just under threat in australia they're under threat globally uh, was there anything that kind of surprised you about capturing these stories about how desperately under threat they actually are um actually the thing that really struck me is how desperate desperately unresourced in australia we are for dealing with with this we actually um signed in 1975 something called the ramsar treaty that honored that brought us to a point where we decided to honour our wetlands and our responsibilities to uphold the, um, the, the areas for shorebirds and other migratory shorebirds. Um, unfortunately, there's been, a case, there's been cases in Australia quite recently where we decided to turn our back on that treaty signatory. Um, 
and not honour our our um, duty. So, by the way, there were there was over 20 signatories on that one agreement across our what we call our flyways, which is the route that birds take from here all the way up to China, Russia, and Alaska. So it's quite a big deal that when we turn our back on a treaty that's upheld across our region, um, just to basically benefit a developer who wants to build a development on top of the territory of some of these shorebirds, which, by the way, Andrew, I should add, are critically endangered. In some instances, there are only 200 breeding pairs left for some of the species of birds. They are right on the edge. So, so us not taking our responsibilities to uphold a treaty and to defile their their rights for you know for conservation and well-being, I think flies in the face of what we want to basically honour as Australians and what we value as Australians, which is democracy and is basically fundamental rights. So I might sound like a bit like an activist, but I am very passionate for basically upholding the rights of animals and humans and making sure that there's a really good um, synchronistic, um, you know, uh, coming together of, of, of both ourselves and the animal world. There was a scientist turned to me many years ago when I was making a film about earthworms for National Geographic. And he said to me, he said, he said, you know the biggest problem right now? He said, it's not water, it's not fuel, it's not oil. It's a loss of biodiversity around the world. And I listened to that and I thought, I sort of thought about it quite a bit afterwards. And it's, I think it really resonated with me for me that, you know, it is actually the whole existence of us on this planet as we know it, we owe to biodiversity. So it's really important that we actually look at what we can do to uphold biodiversity in our regions. Yeah. I mean, earlier this year, I drove down to Esperance and there's a sign on one of the, the roads as we're going, as you drive down that says, you know, this area is a biodiversity hotspot. And for the next two, 300 kilometers, it was just farmland. I'm like, where's the biodiversity hotspot? Where, where is that gone? It's, it's disappeared. And as you were saying about like these sensitive wetlands are getting turned into, well, housing or, you know, resorts or things like that. And there's no real consideration for actually what the purpose is of a wetland, what the need of a wetland is and how important it is, not just for the birds, but for the biodiversity that exists there. Um, and you've kind of touched on this already, but at one stage, one of the scientists says this is that they're convinced that this is a story of extinction. And you're talking about the, the reduced population of, uh, you know, breeding pairs and things like that. And it's really drastic. But I'm curious uh, how you see your role as a documentarian when you're telling this story. Is it as, you know, documenting that the proof that these birds did exist, knowing that they are under drastic threat, or is it a call for action? Is it a push for audiences to take more awareness of what's actually going on and try and uh, push for more action in these areas? Um, Andrew, I think firstly I want to just make a film that celebrates the beauty of the species. Who are they? Where do they go? What are their objectives? What do they need to do to get to where they go? Some of these birds, they will fuel up here in Australia um, and they're flying virtually with just one stopover between here and the north of the world. So at the top of Russia, in some cases, Alaska or China, they're only going to stop in one place to get additional fuel. Um, it's an extraordinary undertaking. And then some of them will, will fly directly back from Alaska once they've bred directly back, meaning they're, they're fine literally non-stop for nine days without touching down. They can't swim. They won't land on water. How do they do it? Why do they do it? 
I mean, there are many questions around that. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary undertaking that these birds, these birds set out on. So that was a big motivation for making the film, was just to look into that, firstly, that joy of what it takes to fly such a distance and the motivation behind it. And then, of course, we start thinking about, well, what are they and what are we doing to, to make sure they don't die out? And as we know, all around the world right now, shorebirds are declining by 5% on average a, a year in their species number. I mean, it's just radical. So when we decide we're going to build an additional 3,600 units on top of their last remaining habitat here in Morton Bay in Queensland, you've got to ask, ask the question, why? Why aren't we taking these things seriously? What does it mean to lose a species forever? And what can we do to perhaps change people's minds around that or at least bring them to an awareness of basically developing things slightly differently? Andrew, I'm not anti-development. I'm anti sort of ignorance. And I think what we need right now is basically just to lift up our chins as Australians, take these things seriously and do our best to uphold biodiversity in our country. I mean, we don't just owe it to ourselves or to the animals. We owe it in shorebirds cases to the entire world because we pay just a, we are linking the chain, like one link in a chain that encompasses at least 20 countries that they need to fly across in their routes. So it's our part. We need to play our part. And I hope the film encourages people to take an actual um, proactive role in that and just consider writing right now somebody like Tanya Plibersek and say, yeah, we know you're taking a decision on the decision right now on those 3,600 units in Tunda Harbour in Queensland. What's the thinking process behind that? Why? And then we can start unpacking perhaps what we, who we want to be. Well, with that in mind, it's, I mean, one of the things which she has said as an environment minister is that there will be no new extinctions under her watch. And it's like, as you're saying, we need to write letters, we need to communicate that and hold these people in power to account. I'm also not anti-development, but we also need to, you know, think smarter and think better and learn how we can actually live with the ecosystem that exists around us. It's, it's very important. But with that in mind, as we're talking about this being such a global story, there are cross-border issues that aren't easily solved within our area, within just Australia. How do we deal with, uh, you know, approaching, you know, as you're saying, Alaska, we've got Russia, we've got China. There, There is this huge amount of uh, different areas that these birds reach. How do we deal with these cross-border issues of ensuring that not only is it in Australia that they're kept safe, but elsewhere too? I mean, I think that starts firstly with setting a great example ourselves, which quite frankly, we're not doing right now. We are running against the current. Right now, as we speak, I mean, China recently, just a few years ago, um, converted a lot of their wetlands back to restoration. And in fact, they've banned um, development on wetlands. Um, and, you know, they've got, they've actually, some of them have recently put into world heritage in Rudon Sea. So China's really pulling up their feet and doing a great job at the moment. What are we doing? We're doing the exact opposite. We're running against the current for some crazy reason. I mean, is it just what is the reason for this? It's money. Perhaps it's kind of a developer who wants to make something for themselves. Is it actually in, in our interest as a community, as a, as a culture, as a society to run that direction? I mean, I think we just need to look at ourselves as Australians and say, what do we want? Who do we want to be? Where do we want to go? How do we want to represent ourselves in our region? How do we want to stand up for our rights as, as a country? In the region because if we run against treaty essentially what we're doing is pushing back against countries and saying treaties don't matter and quite frankly 
I think it's wrong. And I think it's, it's irresponsible as a country to run that direction. So, you know, we have to take, take things seriously. We need to do something about it when we can. And the great thing about being in a democracy is we've got rights as, as citizens in that, in that democracy. So the fact that we can each grab a pen, a phone, an email, and just shoot off a message to our local member, I think matters. And that, that's really what this is about right now. It's, I think it's about getting local to get na- become nat- national and to, to play our part in the international sphere. With that in mind, because it is such a global story and there are these wonderful, splendid shots from the different areas around the globe, I'm curious how you managed to get a consistency of the look of what you wanted to capture. You know, obviously there's a certain point where um, the Ukraine war comes into it as well and it, these global events which lock people down from being able to travel different places. But how did you go about shooting it and, and making sure there was consistency in, in the visuals of what you were capturing? Um, making the film during the COVID era, uh, this particular film was incredibly challenging. Um, and of course, we were halfway through shooting the film when the Ukraine war broke out and that pre- pre- um, actually prevent- prevented us from travelling to um, two-thirds of the places where the film was going to be shot mainly Russia and China at that point in time. So we had to rethink the film some, somewhat. And we did end up shooting up in Alaska. And thankfully, my partner, who is a sound recorder on the film, was with me. And we travelled through Alaska and shoot, shot a lot of that film up there. I'm in location, which I should mention wasn't easy. We were actually attacked at one point um, um, by a, an animal that kills more people than bears. It was actually a moose. Um, and we had to run mud flat and dive into a swamp and hide under the water from this moose that was attacking us, casting away $30,000 worth of of camera equipment behind it um, to get in that swamp to get away from that thing. But So, look, I'm making it sound dramatic, but making a film like this is never easy because you are dealing with mud, you're dealing with salt and and spray and and vast open spaces and sometimes places you've never been before. Um, And we did it against all odds i'm quite proud of that fact but it, but it wasn't easy yeah well it, it all shows on screen you know and <laughs> i imagine being chased by a moose is um certainly a life experience you're not soon to forget at all uh and it's good to see you're still here i have heard that they are quite a dangerous creature and uh very big a bit more drama to add to the story um i was back here in australia and this is quite personal but i'll just share it because it's interesting and um i was having my studio repaired um, by a builder, and at the end of the day, on the 7th, December 2nd, he left the site with a ladder up on the site, and he left his tools on the roof. I scampered up to try and help his tools down. It was starting to rain. He'd gone, and the ladder collapsed underneath me, and um, I hit this concrete from four metres high head first, and I've been in hospital now for five months, um, three, two months full-time in hospital, um, in full rehab. Um, I went, actually, I was unconscious there for, for, um, for three weeks, and um, the thing I think that saved me actually was waking up very slowly from that state and I started dreaming of shorebirds and flying with them, which I know sounds quite melodramatic, but it, was, it really did help me. Um, and so that experience, I've been taught to walk again over the last few months. I've been taught to talk again and to do math again. So it's been quite the process of rediscovering myself. And I think it's taught me a lot about what it might be like to be a shorebird and actually suffer the kind of um, catastrophic, experiences they face on migration when they do fall literally from the sky um, under duress. Um, you know, it's been quite interesting going through an accident. It's taught me a lot about life, and, and I think it's taught me a lot about 
working with animals as well. Well, thank you for sharing that that personal story. And it is great to see that you are here and and being able to talk about this. It's, uh, you know, I've gone through my own personal medical things myself and uh, the journey is very hard, both physically and mentally. So it's great to see you, you know, out and about and talking and sharing these stories. Um, Patching up 16 bones has been a bit of a process, but look, it's okay. I'm, I'm through now and I'm, I just thank the Australian medical community because my God, we are so lucky in Australia to have the kind of support we do. So like every dollar I've ever spent on tax, I now thank God I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do have a very good medical system here. That's true. Um, one of the other aspects which I want to touch on is about the bird watchers around the world, which I think, you know, I'm part of a few different bird watching groups on Facebook and uh, the stories that come out from people who bird watch and, and, you know, capturing an elusive bird and all this kind of stuff is really powerful and exciting. I won't spoil things for anybody, but there is a, a certain bird watcher who is uh, quite prominent, uh, plays a, pro- a pivotal role in the story. But uh, I'm curious about engaging with the bird watchers and what your experience was as you were telling this story and, and getting to talk with them uh, and how important it was to have people who not only just observe birds, but also, you know, track them as a scientific purpose as well. What was that like engaging with those people? Um, I think great stories are always made about people who are passionate, mostly. I mean, I really love passion in a, in a story, people who really have heartfelt connection to what they do and why they do it. And that is bird watching. I mean, once you enter that world, you really experience people who are both dedicated and very focused and also quite technology focused as well, because tracking birds across the world isn't just about watching them. It's also about being exquisitely connected to technology. So I've learned a lot from many of these bird watchers and scientists, um, things I never expected. Just last night, we had a screening of the film here in Cremorne in Sydney um, and where I'm just now. And, um, And interestingly... Um, a young kid came up to me afterwards. He was just, was just terrific. He, was, he must have been only nine years old. And he showed me his photographs on his phone that he'd been taking of birds. And I just looked at him and I looked at his bird photos and I thought, here is a kid who's just got it made. You know, he's going to basically forge out into a great life of, of passion and connection through what he sees as both art and science at, at that very young age. So, you know, I think that that kid has really, just showed me just how wonderful bird watching can be for somebody in terms of both an experience that's personal and also a connection with community because bird watching really brings in you in touch with people who are passionate like you and who can take you to places you've never been before and to un- unfold you in, in ways you never thought you'd be ex- unfolded and exposed to things you never thought you'd see. Um, so there's something quite wild about bird watching, which I think is just beautiful. It, it connects you back to nature and back to sort of something, a sort of spirit in yourself. I sound pretty, pretty, pretty into it, don't I? But I've, it's the up this film to kind of just exploring just how exciting that is and how varied it is. Bird watching is not just Australian wide; it's it's, in, it's thoroughly international. So you know, you can carry your your passion for bird watching from Australia into many places around the world. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is it's a connection to the world around us. I mean, birds are everywhere and. Uh, often sometimes as well, the absence of birds makes, uh, you know, us understand the, the world even more, uh, which I think is really quite a powerful thing. Um, 
again, this is such a visually beautiful film and you're, you're heading out and you've already started on the, the tour of uh, taking it around and doing Q&As and screenings and things like that. Uh, I wonder if you can just uh, briefly, as we lead into wrapping up, talk about the importance of showing a film like this on the big screen and what that big screen experience does when people get to see the great visuals of the birds, of the nature of the landscape on the big screen. What does that do emotionally to audiences? I think there's two points to that. I love the big screen just for the experience of being there in the space. And I also love the big screen because it brings people together into, into, a, into a kind of you know, consensus. And we're having great conversations in the Q&As after the film about what the film actually says and, and what people want to know more of. So, you know, it's been a great experience both visually and kind of just in terms of just hearing and listening. In fact, I hear a bird right now. <laughs> listening to birds. Um, and, and, and looking at them in there, these exquisite places people will, will rarely go. But then also those conversations afterwards take people to, to places where they might not normally go either, into, into their community, into ways of connecting to other communities across Australia and the world. So it's been a pretty nice combination, I think, of both, of both an experiential place and also something that's quite kind of you know, emotionally connecting. Yeah. And of course, uh, I'll make sure people can find out where uh, they can go along and head out and see... Uh, the film in cinemas around Australia. I believe the website is flywaysfilm.com and I'll make sure to share a link with that. But you're doing Q&As everywhere and you're going to have a great experience connecting with people. Um, It's been fantastic to be able to chat with you, Randall, about your film and your work and getting to experience this story. I I really appreciate you bringing it to life and sharing it with everybody. It's, uh, you know, these kinds of stories are really special and uh, I always feel quite touched when I get to experience them. So thank you for bringing it to life. And thank you so much, Andrew. All the best. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox disinfecting wipes, Swiffer wet mopping cloths, Lysol all-purpose cleaner, Swiffer wet jet mopping pads, Mr. Clean multi-surface cleaner, or Lysol power toilet bowl cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary.